Parshas Vayera, we have the story of the destruction of Sodom, Hafuchak Maragav Lochalabayadayim. The Torah's narrative includes the climactic scene where the people of Sodom formed into a mob. They surround Lot, the entire city, Minar Vad Zakain, They call to Lot and they demand that he turn over to them the people who had come to him, some we shall know them, we may know them. Many commentaries explain know them means carnally, they plan to abuse them. Lot attempted to negotiate. Lot went out to them, Lot, and he made them an offer. He made them, he tried to make them a deal. He said, I have two daughters, Asher Yadu Ish, two virgin daughters. I'll give you my two daughters. Do with them whatever you want. Just don't do anything to my two guests, to these two men. For therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. They took refuge in my house. To leave the men alone, I'll give you my daughters. As it turns out, the people of Sodom did not accept his offer. And then the story continues with uh, Lot, the Malachim dragging Lot out of the city and then destroying the entire city. There seems to be a dispute between the Midrash, some of the Rishonim, as to whether Lot's offer was the symptom of a depraved mind or whether it was a good idea, the best he can do under the circumstances. Midrash Tanchuma says, you see from here that Lot was depraved. When Lot left Avram in last week's parasha, they, Avram asked, the, asked Lot if they could split, proposed they split up, Lot chose to go to Vayivchar Lot, it's called Kikara Yardin. Lot chose to go to the region of Sodom. And the Torah tells us, Van Sodom, The people of Sodom were very wicked. Now, one might have thought that Lot chose to go to Sodom even though they were wicked, but the Midrash says no, he chose to go to Sodom because Lot was attracted by the wickedness. That was a feature, not a bug, as they say. He liked the idea. He liked the licentiousness. The licent- licentiousness. He liked the hedonistic lifestyle of Sodom. Lot himself was, a, was an immoral person. And how do we see this? We see it from the story in this week's Pasha. When, when Lot is faced with a crisis, the mob wants his guests. What does he do? He offers them his daughters. That's not normal, the Midrash says. But knowing Sheba Olam, the normal course of the world, a person does anything to avoid having this type of fate befall his wife or daughter. A person would give himself up to be killed for his daughters, for his wife. He'll kill or be killed. He would do anything to avoid this type of harm befalling his daughters. Lot gives them over willingly. He offers them willingly to the mob. So clearly Lot is a morally deranged person. Ramban, Ramban follows the Midrash. Ramban says... Lot is a, is a, his character is mixed. The Torah is telling us the praise that he, that he tried very, very hard to save his guests. At the same time, we also see signs of his depravity, that he was willing to do it by giving them his daughters. You see that Znus, that, that this type of uh, immoral behavior was not something that was so repugnant to him. He didn't think he was doing anything so bad to his daughters. He didn't think he was uh, doing a Hamas gadol to his daughters by doing this. You see that Lot, what, his, his, uh, his moral conscience was, uh, was somewhat distorted. On the other hand, Ralbag, Abarbanel, both seem to understand that Lot acted correctly. Lot did the best he could in a difficult situation. The Ralbag has a unique style. After explaining every story, he then he lists, uh, after, after every section of, of the Torah that, that, he, that he explains, of Tanakh, he then has a section of Toalios, lists of lessons, of beneficial lessons you can learn from, the, from this section of the Torah. So one of the Toalios, number 20, of, 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 this, of, this, of this section of Pasha's Vayera, he says, is you learn a lesson in Midas. Sometimes, Kasher Yavi Ahechrach, Lispal, Pulos, and Magunos, sometimes there are no good options, your only options are both bad. Necessity is that you accept one of two unpleasant, unfortunate outcomes. Still, don't just give up. Choose the lesser of two evils. This is the, the lesser of two evils doctrine. There's a whole Wikipedia page on the lesser of two evils as a philosophy. Choose the one that's less bad. 
And that's what Lot did. He said Lot was more willing to give his, his virgin daughters to these sinners, to the mob, than to give his guests, because homosexuality is worse than ordinary immorality. Ordinary immorality with women, he says, is natural. It's not right. It's against, it's against, it's unethical, but at least it's natural. Homosexuality is unnatural, which makes it worse. A lot to say about this, about why natural behavior is, a, uh, is, is an ingredient of morality, why the Ralbag took for granted that homosexuality is worse, but not our topic tonight. The point is that given that homosexuality is worse than ordinary zima, therefore Lot had no good choices. Lot did not have a good option. It was either the, the women or the men. Lot chose the lesser of two evils, and that's a lesson we learned. The lesson we learn is that the lesser of two evils sometimes is, is what you have to choose. Ralbag doesn't even bring the midrash that says that, that that says that Lot's suggestion was the product of a depraved of depraved conscience. Abarbanel does. Abarbanel brings the midrash, but then he seems to disagree. Abarbanel explains Lot's suggestion, which he seemed, which he approves of, from the perspective of honor. As we've discussed in the past, personal honor was very important to the Abarbanel. The we, we've discussed various examples of this. One of the most striking is the way he explains the argument of Yaakov with his son, Shimon and Levi, after they massacre Shechem. Yaakov says he does not approve of what they did. That, that the, the inhabitants of Canaan will gather for revenge against us, and we're, we're, we're too few in numbers to withstand an attack by the people of Canaan. And Shimon and Levi said, But look what they did to our daughter, to our sister. So the question is, what's the answer? Yaakov wasn't making a moral objection to what they had done. Yaakov was saying that, pragmatically, we don't have the numbers to, to get away with this. And they said, well, look what they did to our sisters. What was the answer? Abarbanel says, it was a matter of honor. For, for a man of honor, he says, death with honor and honorable death is preferable to life with disgrace, to a disgraceful life. And they were saying, yes, you're right. We may lose our lives for this, they said. But it's worth it, because it's a matter of honor, they offended against their sister. It's a matter of honor for us to avenge, to, to avenge what they did to her. And Barbernell, throughout his commentary to Tanakh, often explains various passages in the Torah and in, in Nevi'im based on his idea of personal honor as a paramount virtue. Here as well, he says what Lot's point was, Lot's, Lot's calculus was, these people came to my home, he says. He uses the word covered repeatedly. Ish nichbad b'shovet kalaretz, I am a distinguished and honorable person, he says. He says that the... I'm not a hotel, he says. Why do they come to my house? I'm not a Beisach Sanya. I don't have guests or for pay. But they came to me, they say, because they, they came to me, he said, the way they come to a sar of a gadol, to, uh, to a nobleman. A nobleman is a noblesse oblige. They, they, he has to extend his protection to people in need of it. And that was a very good argument, he says. Michok HaKavod. Michok HaKavod, Lot said, they came to me seeking my protection. They know Sodom is a dangerous place for them. They came to me seeking my protection. As a matter of honor, I'm obligated to extend my protection to them. It's the Minang HaSarim V'Anshei Mala. Hamala, that's the way that noblemen and people of, of high character behave, he says. And therefore, it was not Mamar Maguna. What, what, Lot, what Lot was offering, when Lot offered his daughters, that was not something disgraceful, like Chazal said. It was necessary. Because Lot had accepted the charge, because, because it was a matter of honor for Lot in his position of a noble person to protect his guests at all costs, even if that meant giving up his daughters. I'm not sure how his daughters felt about this. I'm not sure why his duty to protect his daughters as a matter of honor wouldn't necessarily outweigh or at least compete with his duty to protect his guest. But somehow that Barbanel explains his, his duty as a matter of honor, as a, matter, as a point of honor to protect his guests, was the most paramount consideration. And therefore, he, 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 it, was even, it was even the correct thing to do for him to sacrifice his daughters in order to uphold his honor and to extend his protection to these people who had sought his, his refuge. Again, I'm not sure how his daughters felt about this, but this is what the Barbanel says, not like Hazal, who say this was Maguna, this was disgraceful. Rather, it was Hechrechi, this was necessary, not a, uh, not a desirable thing to have to do, but in the, in the circumstances, it was necessary. So we have Hazal, the Midrash, the Ramban, who say that this offer was clearly the product of a deranged, deranged conscience. On the other hand, we have Ralbagin and Barbanel, who both explain that it certainly wasn't an ideal thing to do, but given the circumstances, given that, you know, in the movies there's always uh, 
Look, there has to be another way. Let's find another way. In real life, there's not always another way. Sometimes you have two bad choices. Neither one of them is in any way palatable. Says the Bar- Barbanel and Ralbag. Sometimes you just have to pick the lesser of two evils. Ralbag just says it was the lesser of two evils that sexual immorality with women is just less of, a, of an offensive thing than with men. Barbanel says as a matter of honor, he was obligated to protect his guest at all costs, even if that meant sacrificing his daughters to the mob. None of, these, none of these commentaries are discussing this question from a formal halachic perspective. What would be the right thing to do according to the traditional halacha, the classic halacha? For the remainder of our, of our talk tonight, I want to focus on this question. I want to study the, the, the discussion of Chazal and then the later post came about what do we do when we're faced with, uh, with an impossible choice like this. There are no good solutions. There's no way to emerge from the situation unscathed. We have to choose. We have to choose whether to hand somebody over to an enemy. What do we do? What are the principles that determine whether, what are the rules that govern whether we can hand somebody over to a grim fate, to an enemy, when the consequences of not handing him over would be worse? So the, the discussion begins with a Mishnah and a, and a Brisa and a Yerushalmi in Trumos, the case they're discussing there is not quite the same as the case of Lot, and the, the, the principles we establish there may not necessarily carry over directly to the case of Lot, but nevertheless, the, the, the classic sugya that deals with this general topic begins in, a, begins in Maseches Trumas. The Mishnah says, There are women, non-Jews say to the women, Give us one of your number, and we will defile her, we will abuse her. Vimlav, if you don't do that, we have the power to molest all of you. If you don't voluntarily turn over one of your number, we will defile all of you. What should they do? Let them, you cannot do this, you cannot actively hand over one to the enemy. If the price of that is they'll defile all of them, let them do that. You cannot turn over anyone to the enemy. That is what the Mishnah says. No dispute, no qualifications. That is the ruling of the Mishnah. Tosefta and Trumas brings a parallel din with regard to non-Jews that say, give us one of your number so we can kill them. Instead of defiling a woman, the Tosefta is talking about they will kill somebody. They say, give us one of you, give us one of your number, and we will kill him. If not, we'll kill all of you. So a terrible choice to have to make. Says it to Sefta, Yehargu Kula. The, the choice in the Mishnah is terrible as well. The Sefta says again, similar to the Mishnah, analogous to the Mishnah, Yehargu Kulan, let them all die. They, they, they all have to, to accept death. We cannot turn over, we are not allowed to turn over a single Jewish soul to the enemy. So that, so far, that's an exact parallel to the Mishnah. But now the Tosefta adds a major qualification. If they single out one individual, as they singled out Sheva ben Bichri, then they're allowed, then they should, they're allowed to and they should turn him over and they should not, they should not allow themselves to all be killed. Who was Sheva ben Bichri? Sheva ben Bichri was, it refers to a story in Sefer Shmuel, Sheva ben Bichri was a rebel against David HaMelech, against the, the Davidic kingdom. He said, we have no chelek in, in, in David, in Ben Yishai. He led a rebellion, a secessionist rebellion, against David HaMelech. David's army, led by his general Yoav, pursued Sheva ben Bichri to put down the rebellion. Eventually, Sheva ben Bichri holed up in a city called Avel Beis Macha. Yoav's army besieged the city and began preparations to destroy the city in, to, in order to exterminate this rebel. So the Navi relates that an Isha Chachama, a wise woman, entered into negotiations from the city, entered into negotiations with Yoav. She said, why do you want to destroy our city? He said, Khalila, I don't want to destroy your city. I just need to, I need to eliminate this rebel against, King, against David HaMelech. She said, no problem, we will, we will hand you his head. We'll, we'll, we'll throw down his head to you. They went, they decapitated Sheva and Bichri, led by this woman. They gave the head to, to Yoav. Yoav was satisfied, and he withdrew his forces from the city. So the Tosefta is telling us, if the enemy says, give us one of your number, 
then you're not, we're not allowed to do it. If they don't specify who they want, we're not allowed to just arbitrarily pick one and, get, and, give him, and turn him over, even if that means we're all going to be killed. However, if they single him out, like Yoav, as Yoav singled out Shavah ben Bichri, if they single him out like, in that way, then we're allowed, to, we're allowed to and we should turn him over and we, we don't have to all be killed. That is the Tosefta. Tosefta goes on a little bit, but we'll turn now to the Yushalmi. The Yushalmi says, similar to the Tosefta, it says a group of people, Goyim approach them, and they say, give us one of your number, if not, we'll, we'll, if, uh, we'll kill him, if not, we'll kill all of you. Brings the same halacha as a Tosefta, even if the, the consequence of refusing to comply with them is that they'll all be killed. Al yim Yisrael, you can't do it. But, as it's a Tosefta said, if they're miyached, if they designate, if they single out one specifically, as in the case of Shev and Bichri, then then you can turn them over and they don't have to be killed. So far, the same as it's a Tosefta. But now the Yushalmi adds, Machlokis, Reish Lakish, and Rabbi Yochanan. Reish Lakish says, when we say like Shev and Bichri, that is a very close analogy. It's only if the person they single out is actually Chayef Misa, like Shev and Bichri. Shevan Bichri was a rebel against Davon Melech. That's called the Mari B'Malchus. The Mari B'Malchus is Mari B'Malchus is subject to the death penalty. He's the he, he's Chayav Misa. It says about Yeshua Kolosh Yamres Picha Yumas that that he's Chayav Misa. So that's Rish Lakish says that's what the Tosefta means. That's what the Brisa means. If he's actually Chayav Misa like Shevan Bichri, then you turn him over. But, the fact, but if they single out someone who's not Chayav Misa, arbitrarily they single out one person, then you cannot turn him over. Rabbi Yochanan says, no, even if he's not Chayav Misa like Shev and Bichri, as long as they singled him out, that's sufficient. A very, very, a very, two very different views. One of them says he has to be exactly like Shev and Bichri. The person they, they designate, the person they specify, has to actually be Chayav Misa. That's Rish Lakish. Rabbi Yochanan says, no, even if he's not Chayav Misa, as long as they singled him out, the parallel, the, the example of Shev and Bichri is not an exact, it's not an exact uh, parallel. Even, as long as they single him out like Shev and Bichri, even if he is not Chayav Misa, they can turn him over. Midrash Rabbah, Bereshus Rabbah, brings a, brings it similar to the Yushalmi, brings, it, brings this whole thing. The, both the Yushalmi and the Midrash Rabbah add one final, one final point to the discussion. They bring a story about a person named Ula Bar Koshev or Ula Bar Kishar, who was, he was a wanted man, he was a fugitive from the government. So he came to Rabbi Shuban Levi, he asked him to save him. Rabbi Shuban Levi turned him over, did not save him. He says, better that you should die, they should kill you, and the entire tzibur shouldn't suffer because of you. If we don't turn you over, we're all going to suffer. Better that you should suffer. That better that uh, better that you should uh, that, that you should suffer than the rest of us suffer. So the Yushalmi, the midrash go on. It says Elio Elio Anavi used to appear to Rabbi ben Levi, and he stopped appearing. He cut him off. Rabbi ben Levi fasted and and and, and beseeched. It. What happened? Why is Elio not coming to me? Elio said. I should appear to someone who's a Moser, who hands people over to the government. He said, But the Mishnah says I can do it. The Mishnah says if they single him out, like Shev and Bichri, then he can turn him over. They, 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 Ula Bar Koshev was the one they singled out. Elio said, Is this, is this the way a Chassid acts? Yes, it's Mutter, but is that the way a Chassid should act? The, the Midrash Rabbah adds, Someone else should do it, not you. You shouldn't be the one to do it. It's technically Mutter, but it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's an ugly business. You shouldn't be the one to do it. Some Akronim say that, the, that, that it means that it's mutter, but the, the, the Gedolim and the Chum shouldn't do it. They, they should let someone else do it. Rambam says, It's mutter, but we don't, but we don't teach people this. The Chazanish says that a Chassid should pray to Hashem, that, that the situation should be resolved some other way, that, 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 he should, that he shouldn't have to actually do such a terrible thing. That he has to he has to misspell that Hashem should resolve the matter uh, in, in some other way, but in any event, the, the, this is the story of Ula Bar Kishev, Kishar Ula Bar Koshev. How do we paskin? Do we paskin like Rish Lakish or Rabbi Yochanan? Do we paskin? So the, the halacha is you're not allowed to turn somebody over unless they single him out. But if they, but if, but, but 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 if they do single him out, you're allowed to turn him over. But there's a machlokus. Is that is that only if they if he's actually Chayav Misa? Or is that even if he's not Chayav Misa? 
So that is a machlokas rishonim. Some rishonim, the Ran, maybe others, seem to say we pass him like Rabbi Yochanan, which, which actually is the general rule, in the Bavli at least, that we, we almost always pass him like Rabbi Yochanan against Rish Lakish. So Rabbi Yochanan says, even if he's not Chayavni, he says, as long as they single him out, you can turn him over. However, the Rambam passes like Rish Lakish. Seems to pass him like Rish Lakish. The Rambam says, if they single him out, like Shev ben Bichri, you could turn him over, provided that he's Chayav Misa, like Shev ben Bichri. So the Rambam rules stringently, like Rish Lakish, that you can only turn him over, even if they single him out, even if they specify exactly the person they want, you can, nevertheless, you can only turn him over if that person is actually Chayav Misa. The Ramah brings this Rambam as a Yesha. He brings that, if, he brings like the Tosefta says, you're allowed to turn him over if the Miachet him, the Yesha Omrim, only if, if that person who they're miyached, who they single out, is Chayav Misa. The, the Ramad doesn't say exa- whether that's the Halacha, but the later Akronim, the later Akronim generally paskin like the Rambam, like Rish Lakish, stringently, you're only, even if they single somebody out, you're only allowed to turn that person over if he actually is guilty. If he's not guilty, you cannot turn him over. Now, when we say you're allowed to turn someone over, if, at least if he's guilty, what do we mean guilty? Do we mean guilty according to Torah law, or guilty according to the laws of the non-Jews. So this is actually a machlokas. The Knesset brings the Me'iri, quotes the Me'iri, I was not able to find it, but he quotes the Me'iri as saying that he has to be, he has to, when we say Chayav Misa, we mean he's Mechuyav Misa Bedina Yisrael. He has to actually be Chayav Misa Bedina Yisrael. However, many other Akronim, the Bach and the Taz and the Basilel, other Akronim say, it doesn't matter whether he's Chayav Misa Bedine Yisrael, as, even if he's not Chayav Misa Bedine Yisrael in Jewish law, as long as he's Chayav Misa under non-Jewish law, that itself is, not, is, 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 is sufficient grounds for turning him over. The Bach actually says, with regard to the not Mishnah Chassidim and Ein Morin Kain Lechatchila, we don't, we don't rule this way Lechatchila, the Bach says it actually depends. If he's Chayav Misa, B'din Torah, exactly like Shev and Bichri, that's even L'Chadchila. If he's Chayav Misa, why shouldn't you turn him over? If he's not Chayav Misa, B'din Torah, but he's only Chayav Misa, according to their law, they, they single him out, but he's not Chayav Misa, according to Din Torah, it's still Mutter, but that's not Mishnah Chassidim, and you shouldn't pass him that way L'Chadchila, you shouldn't teach people that L'Chadchila. If they, if they single him out, but he's not Chayav Misa at all, then you, can, then, then, then you cannot turn him over at all. The Bach adds, if we don't actually know if they're going to do it, if they're going to kill him, we don't know what they're going to do to him exactly, then uh, if the law is that they, we have to turn him over to them and we don't know if they're actually going to kill him, then you can turn him over. But putting that last in aside, so the Bach and the Taz and the Basil all rule that, the, that when we say Chayav Misa, the Chazanish as well, we mean Chayav Misa, even under their law, that's sufficient grounds to turn him over. Chazanish says, he can't be Medina Yisrael because, of course you turn him over. Even if it's not a question of Saving, you the re- saving the lives of the rest of the people. If he's Chayav Misa B'dina Yisrael, why shouldn't you turn him over? Obviously, this whole discussion is when he's not Chayav Misa B'dina Yisrael, but only B'dina Goyim. The Taz goes even further. The Taz says, we're talking about someone who B'din Torah is not Chayav only because of the law. He says, even Bismanenu, even in our time, the Taz says, if someone is a criminal and he's murdered by Malchus, he, he rebels against the law of the land, he says, most know, so we turn him over to the government. Okay. So this, this, is, this is the psaac of many Akronim, not all Akronim, but many Akronim at least, that the, that the even though we pass in Lachumra, like Rish Lakish, like the Rambam, that even if they single him out, we can only turn him over if he's actually Chayav Misa. That Chayav Misa does not have to be according to Torah law. That Chayav Misa, it's enough that he's Chayav Misa according to the, that he's Chayav Misa according to the laws of the non-Jews. There are various chuvas about this case that we find, about this, these halachas we find in the Achronim. Two particularly striking chuvas are in the, the Bach. The Bach discusses the sugya both in his commentary to the Torah and in a, in a major chuva, and the Basil. Both, both Achronim from about 400 years ago. The Bach is discussing what we would today call a blood libel. It involves, involves what, what, what the, the crime that that's, that, that falls under the category of desecration of the host. The Christians used to accuse Jews of tampering with their sacred ritual objects, of stealing or mutilating or defiling their host, their, their precious religious objects. It seems so bizarre 
we Jews who lived as a hunted minority, persecuted, we had nothing better to do than to risk our lives by messing around with their, with their ridiculous hosts. But, uh, but nevertheless, it, 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 sound, it sounds almost funny, except that many Jews lost their lives because of this. So the Bach talks about a terrible case where apparently there was an accusation that Jews had desecrated the hosts, and, and, they were, and, and the Christians were furious. They had already executed, apparently, one of the people involved in this alleged crime of, of steal, stealing, their, stealing their idol, stealing their, their icon of some sort. Someone had stolen something from them. Now, they were the, now the Christians were going after another Jew, the Shamash of the Kehillah. They said he had taken possession of this stolen property, stolen from the church or something like that. He had taken possession of, of, of some kind of... Uh, of some kind of bag, and in the bag was this, uh, was, this, was this thing that had been stolen. So the government official said that the Shamash, this, this, this accused Jew, has to appear before the court and stand trial for what he's done. The Shamash was not interested in doing that, so he hid. He, uh, he hid. And he was, he was hiding. He was out of the clutches of the non-Jews. So the, the government said it turned to the leaders of the community. They, 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 they had no problem with collective punishment. They said, you leaders of the community, if you do not produce your co-religionists, this shamash, so we can stand trial, we will, we will punish you with whatever, we will punish you with whatever, uh, whatever punishment Whatever punishment the, we handed down against this guy, we will impose the punishment upon you. So, so can you do that or not? So the Bach goes through this entire sugya that normally we cannot hand over one person to save other people. However, if they designate somebody, then we're able to hear that they were designating the Shamash. On the other hand, even though they were designating him, the question is to see Chayav Misa. We said he can only turn him over. We pass him like, like Rish Lakish, like the Rambam. He can only turn him over if he's actually Chayav Misa, like Shev and Bichri. This Shamash was certainly not Chayav Misa, Bedine Yisrael. But the question is, is he Chayav Misa, Bedine Hagayim? So the Bach says that the, the Bach says that's the question. It depends, it depends what he did. If he actually was complicit in this crime, he did the act that's, uh, for which he's responsible, to be, which he's liable to be punished by, under, under their laws, he says. We can turn him over, he says. Why? Because if he committed the crime, he's the one they want because of his, his malfeasance, his misconduct. It's his fault. He, uh, he, 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 he got us into this mess, and he's liable under their laws. He's culpable under their laws. We can turn him over, he says. So that, that that's a, that he's like Shavuot and Bichri. The fact that he's not Chayav in Israel doesn't matter. Even even if he may be killed, he says it, that they can still turn him over, since they designated him and he's Chayav Bedinehem. It's not our responsibility to suffer for him. It's his fault. Dama Barosho to Garam Lenafshe. However, if he's uh, if he's not Chayav Misa Bedin Torah. It's still, it's not Mishnah's Chasidim. We're not going to pass him away. He is allowed to be handed over. And that's the Bach's ruling. If the Shamash was indeed guilty of this crime, then he is obligated to turn himself in and to stand, to stand trial for what he did. And we can turn him over if we have to, he says. But if he didn't do it, if the Shamash is, is innocent and they're, and they're just, uh, this is a libel against him, he says, then we have no right to force him. If he didn't do anything, we, we can't say he's the Gorim, he's responsible for his fate. He's not responsible. The whole thing is... Uh, is a trumped-up charge. Then he says, we have no right to turn him over, even if it means we're going to get punished. We have to accept that. The, the Beis Hillel talks about a similar case. The Beis Hillel's case was about a girl. A girl who was under the protection of her uncle, a Jewish girl, and an accusation was made against her that she had promised a certain non-Jew that he, he accused her of having promised to shmad, to apostatize, and to marry him. Her uncle realized that she was now going to be in big trouble. The, in Europe, they took, these, they took these things very seriously. Breach of promise, a promise to marry somebody was a serious thing, especially here where it involved uh, becoming Christian. So the, her, her uncle promptly spirited her out of the jurisdiction of the local, the local nobleman into, into somebody else's jurisdiction where she was out of reach of the local people. When they saw that, that, that she was out of their clutches, 
So, in, so, the, so the, the fellow who claimed she had promised marriage to him appealed to the governor. The governor then took the rabbi and the leaders of the community, and he says, you are going to suffer. We're going to punish you until you produce. He's a Jew like you. Go produce him. Go, we can't find him. He's out of our country. He's out of our clutches. Go bring him to us. Go produce him. If not, you're going to suffer. The question is, do they have the right to, do they have the right to, to demand that he, that he appear, that, that she appear, that the girl appear? They, they wanted the girl. They, they said, she's one of you. We can't get her because she's out of our clutches. You're going to suffer until you produce her. Do they have the right to demand that she appear and face the music and, and bear the, the wrath of the government? Says the Beis Hillel, the same basic framework. Normally, you cannot turn somebody over to, to, save, to save yourselves. Even if, even if all of you are going to suffer, you cannot turn somebody over. Unless they designate that person and we paskin like Rish Lakish, like the Rambam, and that person is Chayev like Sheva ben Bechri. Now, on the one hand, he says, like the Bach, like the Taz, like the Chazanish, we don't require that the person actually be Chayev Bedine Yisrael. It's enough if, he's, if he or she is Chayev Bedine Hagayim, a non Jewish law. So you might think, he says, in this case also, since their law is that when somebody makes a, an accusation, an allegation that, that somebody breached a promise to marry, that person, the accused, the, the, the one who's accused of breaking his or her promise, it, is obligated to present himself to the court and accept the, the, the authority of the court. As, as that's the law. The law is that under the law, she has to present herself and, uh, and stand trial. So maybe we can argue that that's like Shev ben Bechri. Says the Beit Hillel, that is a big mistake. Not at all, he says. Because what's the svara? We said before, what's the svara that, that if the person is actually Chayev, even Medine Goyim, that, that, that we can turn him over? What's the svara for that? Like the Bach, he says, because he was Gorim. He caused it by, by doing whatever he did that he shouldn't have done. He or she did it that he or she shouldn't have done. He brought the problem. So he's, so it's his fault, so we can turn him over. Now the Bach just says it's his fault. The Chazanish doesn't like that. He says the svara is not so mustaver. The Chazanish and the Beit Hillel uses this language, say the svara is he's like a Rodif. He or she is endangering the community. When he or she committed that crime, did that thing wrong, that, that's now bringing down the wrath of the, of, of the non-Jews upon us, that person got us in trouble, so he's a rodif. A rodif is someone who endangers others, endangers the community in this case. So if he did something wrong, if she did something wrong, and that's why they're putting pressure on us, then we can turn them over because we don't have to suffer he brought the problem here. He's a road day, so we can turn him over. Chazanish is not really a road day in the classic sense, but the, it's considered a road day for these purposes. It's considered a road day for these purposes. The, the way the Chazanish puts it is, he's, it's, not, it's not a din road day because he was only doing it to, to, in, to save himself. You can't call him a road day for running away. But still, since the problem is, since he got us into this trouble, he says, we don't have to suffer for him because he's like a road day, if he's sort of a road day. So, whether like the Bach says, because he caused it, whether like the Chazanish and the Basil say, because he's a Rodef, because he caused it, and therefore he's a Rodef. Therefore, so if the person actually did something wrong, then we can turn him over. However, if the person did nothing wrong, and they just have, they just have a, a trumped-up allegation, even though that's the law, even though the law says that, you, that, you, that in such a case where someone makes an allegation against you, you have to present yourself in court, we're not going to be Micaiah for to present herself in court. She, the, the girl in this case was denying it. She was insisting. She was pleading. It's not true. She never made such a promise. She didn't do anything. So even if the law says that even if there's no, that, that even someone who denies it must appear in court, we cannot force her to appear in court, he says, because as far as we know, there's no evidence she did anything wrong. Therefore, we cannot demand that she present herself in court, even if that means that the other people will suffer, he says. Since she didn't do anything wrong, according to her story, according to her claim, she did nothing wrong. We, we, even though they're designating her, we have no right to turn her over, unless we know the, the flip side of the Bach. In the Bach's case, he says, if we know the Shamash did something wrong, and that's why he's in trouble, that's why he's bringing down trouble on the whole community, we, we have the right to demand that he, appear, that, that he present himself to, to their justice, subject himself to their justice, we can turn him over. But the Beit is saying, if we don't know he did anything wrong, if he's denying he did anything wrong, if she's denying she did anything wrong, and there's no evidence against her, her story is perfectly plausible, even if the law, their law demands that they subject themselves to their uh, justice system, we cannot force her to do that. The risk is high that they'll torture her or abuse her, and we, we can't do that. And therefore, even if it means we're going to suffer, we cannot, we cannot turn her over. As, uh, as a coda, he says, what he did recommend was, what, what he did say is that she should turn herself in to the governor of the city in which she now found herself, 
because that governor wasn't as powerful, wasn't as ruthless, apparently, and therefore she wasn't, she, and therefore she was less likely to suffer unfairly. As long as she protested her innocence, she was less likely to suffer. That's what we did, he says. We, we told her to turn herself in to that, to that non-Jew, and she did, and he indeed found her innocent because there was no proof against her. So apparently the story had a happy ending. But I'll call upon him. This is the general framework accepted by the poskim that we paskin like, we paskin like the Mishnah, the Tosefta, the Yushalmi, you cannot turn somebody over to save everyone else, even if that means that we're all going to suffer. The only exception is the one set forth by the Tosefta and the Yushalmi. If they single out one individual, then we can turn him over. However, there's Machlokh, Rishlokh, and Rabbi whether that's only if he's Chayav Misa, or even if he's not, or, or, or even if he's not Chayav Misa, we paskin Lahachmer, like Rishlokh, that's only if he's Chayav Misa. However, the Chayav Misa is, is, is even if he's Chayav Misa B'dinehem, or the Dinam of the non-Jews, even if he's not Chayav Misa B'dinei Yisrael. However, one more, however, that's only if the Chayav Misa is due to something he actually, only if the, if the, only if the, if the law is based on something he actually did. If he, if he did not do anything, if there's no evidence he did anything, and uh, they, they just demand that he appear anyway, even though there's no evidence, that, since it's not his fault, as far as we know, he didn't do anything wrong, then we cannot force him or her to appear, and that's what the, the Beis Hillel ruled in his case. Now, there is a major machlokes achronim. It says we can't just, if, if they don't single anybody out, or even if they do, and he's not Chayav Misa, according to, even if he's not Chayav Misa, according to Reish Lakish, according to the halacha that we follow, we cannot just, we cannot just pick, pick somebody and turn him over to save everyone else, even though that means the rest of us will die or suffer. So we can't arbitrarily pick somebody out if he's not guilty. What about doing a guru? What about casting lots, holding some kind of lottery to decide whether to decide to pick one person to turn him in? So the Tavaris Lamosha says that you can do. When the Mishnah, the Tosef, when the Mishnah Tosefta says you can't just turn somebody over arbitrarily, that means you can't just pick somebody and say, you're the least popular, we're going to turn you over. We don't like you. That you can't do. But if they, if they do a goral, they do a fair process, then they are allowed to turn somebody over. Many Echaram disagree. The Chadre Deya, the Mishnah Saroim, the Chazanish, the Abiyah Omer, Avadi Yosef, they all say, how can you do such a thing? How can you send somebody to his death by a goral? The Chazanish points out, if, if goral is really a solution, why would the Mishnah say, Yamusu Kulan, they all have to die? Why should they all die? Just do a girl. If there's such a solution, why wouldn't the Mishnah say that? So, some, say, some suggest the Mishnah's talking about where they, where they, don't, want, they don't want a girl, that the Gaim insists that they're, they're, they, are, they are diabolical enemies, and they insist that, that you do it without a girl, that you just choose arbitrarily. Some say, just telling you the basic din, where with, before you do a girl, in theory, that would be the din. But in practice, you're allowed to do a girl. The question, I think, is better than the answer. If, if, if Goral was really a valid solution, it's hard to imagine how the Mishnah would have remained silent and just said, Yemusu Kula, and let them all die without explaining that in many cases, Goral is an effective means to save the lives of most of the people. Certainly, though, the Mashmos of the Mishnah and the Tasefta, the Ushalmi, is that Goral is not a solution, but the Rasta Machron who felt that it was, the Tveris Lamosha, distinguished Achron and Yeridea, felt that Goral is a good solution, and other Achron disagree. Now the Chazanish strongly disagrees and says that we, that we can't send somebody to death by a girl. However, the Chazanish says you can't do that unilaterally. You can't, people can't decide without everyone's cooperation to send somebody to, their, to his death without a girl. However, the Chazanish says in Miskimu Kulam, if they all agree to do a girl, and the person who, who the girl selects agrees to agrees to, 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 to submit himself to the, to the enemy, that's okay, because the halacha is an individual is allowed to give up his life to save, uh, to, save a, to save a larger group, as we, as, we, as we find in the story of Haruge Lud. Haruge Lud is a story that appears in various places in Chazal. It's a story of martyrs, two people who gave up their lives to save the Jewish community. There are different versions of the story about exactly what the situation was. According to one approach, the Chazanish is referring to there were, there were a princess, a princess of a non-Jewish king was found dead, and he blamed another Jews, and he was preparing to destroy the entire Jewish community. And these two people, who may not have even been Jews, they said, we did it. We're the guilty ones, and they accepted the, the terrible punishment on themselves. I think they were tortured to death, and, and they saved the, the entire Jewish community. 
And it says that they did something of, uh, of, 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 of uh, they did a tremendous, tremendous mitzvah, and they're going to be rewarded tremendously for what they did. It says the Chazanish, this is the halacha, that an individual is allowed to give up his life to save the rabbim, the, the community. We discussed last week that on other occasions, it's a big machlokis, whether on an individual basis, whether somebody is supposed to risk his life to save somebody else from certain death. We discussed in the context of Avram risking his life to save Lot. That's a major debate. Many posts can say they're not allowed to. You're not allowed to, but in the case where you're saving the whole Klai Yisrael or an entire, entire group, that may be different. The Chazanish is saying, so if, if they decide to do a Goral and the person who the Goral lands on agrees to give up his life, that they're allowed to do because the person's allowed to give up his life to save everyone else. You can really ask the same question on the Chazanish. If that's really true, why would the mission just say, Yahargu Kulon? Why wouldn't the mission tell you this? That, that, that if they're all going to die anyway it seems quite likely that one of them would, would do the noble thing and say, we're all going to die anyway, I might as well give up my life to save the rest of you. So it's, it's, you can still really ask the same question on the Chazanish, why wouldn't the mission tell you that? But that's what the Chazanish said. Even if you have no right to do a goral unilaterally to send somebody to his death, but if the person agrees, if they all agree to the goral and the person upon whom the goral lands agrees to uh, submit himself to, the, to his fate, that's okay. Now, the Abiyah Omer strongly rejects the idea of doing a goral, and he says, he has various arguments, and he says, how can you rely on a girl? Even when it comes to mammon, even when it comes to, to money, he says, we say, we say that a conditional agreement is not binding. The Gemara actually says that asmachta is a principle at certain types of penalty agreements, or even more generally conditional agreements. If things turn out a certain way, then I'll pay you some money. Is not binding. A person didn't really hope it wouldn't turn out like that, didn't really think it would turn out like that, didn't really mean it when he said that. So the Asmachtalokanya. And the Gemara actually brings an opinion that gambling is considered theft because the person who loses was hoping he would win, wasn't really prepared to lose, and the person who takes money from the, the winner who takes money from the loser is taking money as a form of gzela, because asmachtalokanya. It's a big machlokas whether we pass him like that. Svardim, the, the, the Rambam and the Shulchanarach and Svardim are stricter. Ashkenazim following the Ramah are more lenient, following other Ishanim. But the Ravadya says, even the Mamar Asmachtalokanya, Gorals and lots are not, are not considered binding agreements. Certainly when it comes to life and death matters, a goral is not binding. So Ravadya seems to be saying, even if they make a goral, it wouldn't be binding. If the person upon whom the goral landed said, you know, I changed my mind, I'm not really ready to, to go willingly to my death, the, the Ravadya seems to be implying he could change his mind. Whether the Chazanish agrees to that is not entirely clear. The Chazanish says, if they all agree to do a goral, and the one upon whom the goral landed gives himself over to the enemy, the Chazanish does seem to be saying that not only does he have to agree to the girl initially, he has to agree, after the girl lands on him, he has to agree to continue to abide by the girl. The Chazanish may be implying that he can walk away at that point, like Ravadi says, Maktalokanya. Maybe there's no real disagreement. Maybe even Ravadi would agree that if at, if at the point the girl lands on him, he's still willing to voluntarily turn himself over to the enemy, like the story of Haruge Lud, maybe even, maybe even Ravadi agrees. I'll call upon him some postcom seem to say that, that, that we have the right, even without buy-in, we have the right to do a goral and condemn somebody to death. Many postcom disagree with that. The Chazanish says they can voluntarily do a goral, and at least in the case where the loser, the one who gets a short straw, voluntarily submits to his fate, that's okay. Ravadia says that the goral wouldn't be binding, but even Ravadia may agree that if even after the goral, he, 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 the person who lost agrees to turn himself in, that, that, that may be a valid thing to do as the Haruge Lud. Now, there's, a path, there's an idea attributed to Rav Salvechik, which has been bothering me for a very long time, for years. Rabbi Aaron Ziegler, author of Halachic Positions of Rabbi Joseph B. Salvechik, quotes the Rav as follows. He says, Many people make a distinction between Chukim and Mishpatim, Laws that chukim are the laws that are not accessible to human reason, that the reasons are beyond our comprehension. Mishpatim are the, the ones that have a clear rational basis. Rav Salvechik says, even mishpatim are as much pure, abstract, and not necessarily explainable laws rooted in Ratzon Abore as are the chukim. Now, it's not just people who say this. We shown them, we, we, Rambam and others, we shown them divide the mitzvahs into different categories of chukim and mishpatim, of mitzvahs that are accessible to human reason and mitzvahs that are not. Rav Salvechik, though, was not, apparently was not so impressed by this distinction. And he gives examples. He says, lo sirtzach, don't kill. So, it seems obvious and logical. 
Mishpatim, don't kill. However, he says, maybe some types of murder, some classic murder is understandable, but some types of murder are much more debatable. What about capital punishment? Some people say capital punishment is murder. Some people say it's important. Society needs it to function. Who's right? The, the Torah has rules, but logic wouldn't be sufficient. Abortion. Some people say logically abortion is always murder, even to save a life. Christians take, some Christians take this position. You can't abort a fetus even to save a life. Others claim, equally logically, abortion is a, woman, a woman's right, and it's a violation of her privacy to deny it to her. Who's right? Obviously, says Rosalavechik, logic alone cannot answer such questions. Halacha can and does. Halacha has rules. I never really understood Rosalavechik's position. Just because someone disagrees, I don't know why, just because people disagree and have heated disagreements about certain moral questions, why that implies that logic cannot answer such questions. That's true, you can't prove it using formal mathematical logic. That hardly means that it's not accessible to human reason. But after Rosalavechik is said to have maintained that even Mishpatim have cases that have major important subcategories that are beyond human reason. And then Rabbi Ziegler says Rav Salvechik also offered an ethical example, similar to the cases we've been discussing tonight. Hypothetical example. Ten people are on a lifeboat, middle of the ocean, far from shipping lanes. Rescue is almost impossible. If they do nothing, all ten will die within seven days. If they draw lots, kill one, and use his flesh for food, nine will live somewhat longer. Logic will say to kill him. Even if they don't kill him, he'll die anyway. They're all going to die. By if they kill him, nine will live longer. Maybe they'll survive. Maybe they'll be rescued in time. Logic would say, logic dictates, kill him. The Torah says, lo sirtzach, Rav Salvechik calls that a gzeris akasim. Now, the question is, could you, what is the halach in such a case? Could you actually kill one person and eat him? We discussed recently, we, we discussed last week, we discussed cannibalism. That was already when the people are already dead. What about actually killing somebody to eat him? If you don't kill him, they're all going to die. If you kill him and eat him, the other people may live. So again, Mishnah Truma says, you can't just sacrifice somebody to save the, other, the, the rest of the people, even if they're all going to die. So Rav Salvechik's basic rule seems to be a, a version of the Mishnah. However, we just discussed that some posts can say that you can do a lottery. Even though the Mishnah says you can't arbitrarily turn somebody over, but you can cast lots and, and, and turn somebody over. So would that mean that, that in Rav Sal- would the Tferis Lamosha say that in Rav Salvechik's case as well, we can cast lots, and whoever is unfortunate to draw the, the, the short straw can be butchered and eaten? I don't know. Sounds a little strange, but I don't, it makes sense. If the Tferis Lamosha says that we can cast lots and decide to turn somebody over to the non-Jews to kill him, maybe we can cast lots to, to turn somebody over and eat him. What about according to the, the Chazanish? The Chazanish says that the Haruge Lud... If all the people agree, they can cast lots, and the person can agree to turn himself over to the Gaim to be killed. Does that mean that somebody can agree to let himself be killed and butchered so others can survive? Maybe. I'm not sure. Maybe for some reason killing and eating somebody is different than turning him over to the Gaim. I'm not sure why. Anyway, Rav Salvechik's stand is not so simple. Rav Salvechik says that it's Pashut, even though logic says you kill him. So first of all, I'm not sure if logic says to kill him. If you would do a survey of uh, ethical thinkers today... Scholars of ethics, ordinary people, laymen, and ask them, what do you think? Is it, uh, is it, uh, does, does logic say you should kill one to save the other nine? I'm not sure what people would say. But Lahalacha of Salvechik, according to this quote, takes for granted you cannot kill one to save the other ten. So on the one hand, that's clearly true. It's an explicit Mishnah that you cannot, Mishnah, Tosefta, Yerushalmi, Midrash, Rabbah, you cannot just kill somebody arbitrarily to save the other ones. On the other hand, whether you can do so via a goro, is a, is a matter of some debate. Tavares Lamosha says you can always do a goral to decide to turn somebody to, to decide who to turn over to the government, even though many, perhaps most, posts can disagree. But even the Chazanish, maybe Rav Avadia, say that if they all agree to do the goral and if they all agree, and, and, if, and if even the loser agrees to be Moser Nefesh to save the rest of the people, he could do that. So maybe it's possible, even in this case of the lifeboat, it is possible that according to that, if all the people would agree that one of them will give up his life and agree to be killed and butchered and eaten to save the rest. It sounds macabre, but it is possible that that would be something he's allowed to do, according to the Chazanish. One, uh, one final source on this topic, which I've rarely seen people bring, there is a Chasim Sofer. Chasim Sofer was talking about the terrible decrees of the 19th century, where the, where the government would have a draft, a military draft, and being in the army then was a pretty grim fate. And today the draft is individual. The, the draft procedures select individual people who have to be 
who have to be called up to the army. Back then, the drafts were sometimes collective. The, 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 the army would tell people, we need, we, need a certain, we need a certain number of people from your village. Produce five people. Give, give, give us five people from your village. You choose who they'll be. What are you supposed to do? Terrible, terrible question. Chazim Sofer struggles with this. He says, on the one hand, it is the right of the government. They do have the right to draft citizens to serve in the army. So, but how do we decide who to give? If they're not, if they're not signaling out individuals, they're not being the yachid anybody, so how do we decide what to do? Says the Chazim Sofer, that except for Tamil Chachamim, Bachurim, Lamdei Torah, who are exempt from the service, he says, Mi'idach, everyone else, they should all present themselves in a fair way. In a, in a fair way, they should all have an equal chance of being picked. They should cast lots, and whoever the Goral lands on, he either has to serve, or he has to find some way of buying his way out of service, or hiring a surrogate, or serve. It's a mitzvah, everyone has to try to, to redeem him. However, he says, the, you cannot force anybody to serve, we cannot force people just because they're they're just because they're apparently less religious and less valuable people. Absolutely not. We don't, we don't make those distinctions, he says. But everyone, has to, everyone has, to, has to present themselves equally for service, and a lot, of, a lot, lot should be cast to determine who's going to actually be chosen. I'm not sure why. According to the, what we've been learning tonight, if the enemy wants someone, we don't turn anybody over. If they don't designate somebody, we can't turn anybody over. The Chadridea says we cast lots. Many of disagree. It, does the Chasim Sofer agree to the Chadrei Dea that, that, that we do cast lots in such a case? Or is this different because this is Din Malchus Adina? Up till now, we've been discussing cases where they are miyachid somebody, either, and he is Mechoyed Misa or he's not Mechoyed Misa. The Chasim Sofer is an unusual case where they're not miyachid anybody. They don't single out anybody they want. They don't designate anybody specific. But they do have the right to demand people. The Chasim, the Chasim Sofer says very clearly, it's Din and Malchus, so they do have the right to demand people to serve in the army. What they're doing is Kedin. So either the Chasim Sofer holds like the Tavares Lamosha against the other Akronim that in the case of the Mishnah where the enemy says, give us, one of your num- give us one of your number, and they don't say who, we're actually allowed to cast lots, that would be a tremendous chedush. Or we can distinguish between a case where the enemy is demanding things without justice, Shalokadin, or Kedin. If the enemy is demanding people Shalokadin, then we have no right to cast lots, and, and, and like the Chazanish and the and the Chadre Deo, who disagree with the Tavares Lamosha. But if the enemy has the right to demand people, Dinah Malchusa, if they have the right, then we do cast lots. We have to give them somebody. They, they, have, they, have, they have the right to, to ask for somebody to serve. And we just don't know, we, we have no way of choosing. Then maybe everyone agrees to the Chasim Sofer that we do cast lots in order to decide who shall be the ones who have to suffer the fate of being drafted into the army.